0: What's up what's up everybody welcome back to a late in the week uh, episode of the format podcast again I'm Bruce thanks for joining me and uh, this week we're gonna talk some NFL of course right can a week really go by without us talking NFL but anyway um, are the Cowboys really willing to pay Dak Prescott 27 to 30 million dollars annually we'll get into that We'll also talk about the uh, NFL scouting combine, some absolutely freakish performances there. That should be awesome. Then last night, LeBron James passed Michael Jordan and moved into third all-time, excuse me, fourth all-time on the NBA scoring list. We'll talk about that. Uh, We'll also get into the Lakers prospects for the playoffs for the summer. We'll look at uh, Golden State. We'll talk about some other playoff matchups, and we'll talk about Milwaukee in the East. So sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 18 of The Format. Past weekend we had the uh, NFL scouting combine, and realistically, I could do an entire podcast just on the combine by itself. So I'm not gonna get too into that. I'll make some uh, some notes about it later in this segment. But first, obviously, we know that the NFL is going to continue to give us things to talk about. But being that it is, you know, the heavy season in the NBA, really at the home stretch of the playoff run. We're going to try to keep our NFL talk brief. We're going to have plenty of time to continue to discuss that on other episodes. One of the biggest things that I wanted to get to was, I heard this morning that the Cowboys are okay with paying Dak Prescott 27 to $30 million annually. We know Dak is looking for a new deal. And basically, as a third-round draft pick, He's been pretty much playing for, I think, like $750,000 a year since he came into the league. And by NFL standards for good quarterback play, that's just a tremendous discount. Now, I get that he is looking for his value in the open market. I get that in a dangerous game. He's looking to maximize his on-field earning potential. I get all that. What I don't get is why Jerry Jones and the Cowboys are willing to pony up that type of money, 27 to $30 million annually, which is elite quarterback money for a quarterback who has shown not at all that he's elite. I can't understand that. You're going to have Cowboy fans, and they're going to argue that Dak Prescott is stable. He hasn't missed a game in his NFL career, okay? They are going to argue that Dak Prescott has won two division titles in three years in the league, okay? Can't argue that either. They're also going to argue that Dak Prescott has the highest completion percentage in the first three years of a starting NFL quarterback's career, I believe at 67%. Okay, not going to argue that either. Those are all great points. But now let's do a little more deep diving, as I like to do, into that bit of information, those points for Dak Prescott getting paid. I've got some arguments against, all right? So the first, and probably for me, the biggest, is very simple. He has Ezekiel Elliott. And when Zeke doesn't play or doesn't play well, the Cowboys simply don't win. It's that easy. We always talk about how, for a young quarterback, a running game or a tight end as a security blanket are their two best friends. Now, Dak Prescott has had the benefit of having a tremendous run game for all three years he's been in the league, save for those six games that Ezekiel Elliott was suspended during the 2017 season, he's had the benefit of having one of, if not the top run games in the NFL all three years. And if you're gonna tell me that that doesn't help to boost those numbers in terms of uh, completion percentage, then you're ridiculous, right? Even in the games that he has to, He still isn't putting up really good passing numbers in an era where just about everyone is airing it out. This is what I don't understand. Now, I get it. You're going to say the Cowboys are a uh, run-heavy, run-offense-based team, and that's fair. But if that's the case, shouldn't Dak Prescott be really making a killing eating off of the play-action pass game? He should be, right? Okay. So let's look at this. I took... 80 yards as a barometer for a really good uh, running back in the NFL, right? If you played 16 games at 80 yards a game, you would have over 1,300 yards rushing, which is really good now, especially in an era where you know most teams don't run the football as much, right? So that that's really good. Now, with that said. I've looked up the numbers, uh, checked out ProFootballReference.com, looked up uh, Dak Prescott's numbers and Zeke's numbers, and then, of course, Dak Prescott's numbers when Zeke doesn't play or doesn't play well. So in 17 career games that Zeke hasn't played or has rushed for under 80 yards in the game, remember 80 yards being my parameter, Dak Prescott is 6-11. and 11. That's his record, 6-11. and 11. So, I'm a big empirical evidence guy, right? Remember we talked about that last episode. And to me, 6-11 and 11 very simply says, when Dak has to play without Zeke or play with Zeke not playing well running the football, he's simply unable to get you those wins. He's not the kind of quarterback that can put a team on his back and get it done for you. And... To me, that is the obvious evidence that you don't need to pay this guy 27 to $30 million annually. That type of money should, in theory, be reserved for guys that can win the game for you with average, less than average, or slightly better than average receiving targets, as well as not always having a running game that's getting 80, 100, 120, 150 yards rushing. All those things are why I In my opinion, Dak Prescott should not get paid that elite quarterback money. Seems pretty simple. Uh, Moving on to the combine. Obviously, we know that uh, the NFL combine was held uh, last weekend. Um, You know, the annual uh, workout for a lot of the incoming top draft prospects to kind of have an opportunity to talk to a lot of people from different teams to run a number of drills. The glamour drills, of course, being the uh, 40-yard dash and the bench press. Um, you have three cone drills, shuttle drills, uh, uh, long jump, broad jump, et cetera, right? Vertical leap. And we saw a lot of, uh, really good stuff. A lot of guys were able to, uh, boost their reputations. They had coming in with really solid or exemplary workouts. They were again, able to have the opportunity to talk to a lot of, uh, NFL coaches and executives so guys could get a feel for them. Obviously, a lot of the top players will still have workouts at pro days and such, um, but this is just another piece to the puzzle in terms of evaluating and deciding where guys are going to go on your board in terms of being drafted. Um, so some notes I have for the combine, and this is interesting that I read uh, and have been hearing. Rumors are heavy now that Kyler Murray is going to be taken number one by the Arizona Cardinals and their new head coach, Cliff Kingsbury, who would love to. To put him in his scheme, uh, being that Kyler Murray obviously ran something similar to Kingsbury's air raid scheme uh, with the multiple system that he ran at Oklahoma under head coach Lincoln Riley and won uh, Heisman Trophy last year. Um, We know that Kingsbury seems to be pretty enamored with him and not necessarily with pure drop back uh, pro style passer uh, Josh Rosen. So we're also hearing now that Rosen may be on the trading block to see what they can get for him in order to make room for Kyler Murray. So that should be interesting to watch as that saga continues to unfold. For me personally, and I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, I really feel like if you're Arizona, they should go ahead and make it a point to trade this pick down and get as much as they can for it so that they can continue to fill out other holes on the roster because this is a team that just has so many needs. Other interesting notes that I heard uh, regarding Kyler Murray and the Combine, uh, former NFL uh, general manager Charlie Casserly and current NFL network analyst was actually saying that he heard from the Combine that uh, Kyler Murray didn't interview well with uh, some of the team executives, etc., that he talked to. Um, they didn't get the feeling or the vibe that he has good study habits. Apparently, he didn't do as well at the uh, whiteboard as Baker Mayfield did last year in terms of uh, you know retaining the information, going up there, diagramming plays, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he also isn't necessarily perceived as being the immediate leader that people other players etc will gravitate to like Baker Mayfield um, was and continues to be and that's very interesting obviously uh, Kyler's uh, teammates rave about him his coaches at Oklahoma speak highly of him of course they will right that's their guy but I do think it's interesting that he's not perceived as the type of leader that Baker is perceived as Um, he he does seem to be uh, more soft-spoken and less kind of outgoing and less rah-rah than Baker Mayfield. But obviously we saw that on the field, he's a tremendous leader, uh, maybe less verbally less verbally, but more in terms of the plays that he is able to make uh both with his arm and with his legs to inspire his teammates to follow him. So that's another thing we'll be watching out for is to see whether or not Arizona does take him. And if they don't where does he end up? You know, how is he perceived by other teams in the draft? And and is he even the first quarterback taken? For me, he wouldn't be, even though I like a lot of what I saw on tape. But again, we've seen a lot of outstanding, dynamic athletes who played in the spread system in college who weren't necessarily able to make that transition to being outstanding NFL quarterbacks. So definitely uh, waiting to kind of see that. Also at the... Uh, combine we see that Kyler Murray didn't do any drills so uh, the Oklahoma Pro Day is at uh, March 13th and we will obviously see him throw there don't know if he's going to run but we'll see him throw there and probably do some drills and then of course we're you know we're sure that he'll probably be interviewed some more and kind of further evaluated by uh, NFL scouts executives and coaches but I think maybe in Kyler Murray's mind his mindset is Everything you need to know about me is on the tape. Watch the tape and I will show you what I can do, how good I can be. And I think probably especially playing in the Big 12 where defense is very limited, a lot of what they're going to look at is how he fared against Alabama in the college football playoff this past year where, you know, it took him pretty much an entire half him and the coaching staff and the rest of his team To get used to the almost NFL quality speed, physicality, and defense of Alabama before he was really able to get going and almost tear through him in that second half. So I think that that particular game on tape is gonna be very big in terms of evaluation as well as what we see from him on his pro day. Uh, Next up, uh, Dwayne Haskins really kind of cemented himself as the top QB outside of Kyler Murray, the enigmatic Oklahoma star we just talked about at the the Combine and with his workouts. Obviously, he didn't run well, but no one was expecting that. He's not what's perceived as an extremely athletic, mobile-type quarterback, but he is an outstanding pocket passer, as is evidenced by his 50-touchdown, eight-interception season at Ohio State last year, leading the Buckeyes to a Big Ten championship and a Rose Bowl win. And probably one of the most impressive things that you saw when it came to Dwayne Haskins was him absolutely shredding that vaunted Michigan defense, which was, uh, I believe, number one or two in the country coming into that game uh, in the final regular season game in the in the Big Ten, absolutely shredding them uh, through the air en route to putting up over 60 points. So that's a game in terms of film that's probably going to go a long way towards uh, Dwayne Haskins and how he's viewed for the NFL level. Uh, He threw the ball extremely well in those drills. Again, he's not a mobile guy, but if you draft Dwayne Haskins, that's not what you're looking for in terms of his growth, development, and production. Next up, we saw some absolute freaks at the Combine. I mean, every year you see freaks in terms of guys who put up just tremendous workouts. One of them was... uh, Ole Miss wide receiver DK Metcalf, who ran a 4-3-3 40-yard dash. That in of itself is lightning. He also had a 40-inch vertical leap, which is on par with a lot of NBA players. But the scary thing is this guy is 220 pounds. To have that kind of speed at 220 is just crazy. That was a heck of a workout. And honestly, he drew comparisons to uh, Atlanta Falcons star wide receiver Julio Jones in terms of having that type of speed and explosiveness at that size. But what really got me in terms of the combine, I was just honestly astounded at these defensive linemen. The, The question has to be, what are these guys eating and how are they training? No one that big should be moving that fast. In all seriousness, when you look at some of these guys, it's almost defying physics. These are things that were inconceivable 10, 20, 30 years ago in terms of size, speed, power, explosiveness. It is insane. Let me give you some of the numbers. Mississippi State defensive end Montez Sweat ran a blazing four four one forty. This guy weighs 260 pounds. You weigh 260 pounds and you're running a four four one. Come on. Uh, Alabama's star all-American uh interior defensive lineman Quentin Williams ran a 483 now 483 doesn't necessarily sound like it's lightning except when you think about the fact that he's 303 pounds so this guy is not only an earth mover in terms of the interior he is also incredibly fast if he gets an opportunity a rare opportunity to to get up the field unblocked. That is scary. Clemson All-American defensive lineman Dexter Lawrence ran a 5.05 40 time at 342 pounds. That makes no sense how a guy that size can be moving like that. 342 pounds. These new strength and conditioning and training programs for these top flight uh, athletic programs are just ridiculous what they're putting out. Uh, Notre Dame's uh, All-American defensive tackle Jerry Tillery ran a 4.93, another really fast time. Let's take into account he's six seven and weighed in at 295 pounds. Ridiculous to think that this is what these guys are doing now. Michigan's Rashawn Gary ran a 4.58 at 277 pounds and a 38-inch vertical leap. I mean, I'm giving you all these numbers, but if you didn't see it, It's hard to compute how guys this size can do what they're doing. And it's just, again, testament to the strength, the conditioning, the training regimens and routines that these guys are getting both at their colleges and universities and also at their training facilities that they're going to once they leave school to start preparing for the draft. These numbers are literally insane and the best by a defensive group in Combine history. So before we're done talking about the NFL here today, I'm just going to give you some NFL quick hits. So I'm not going to go into this too much. I'm just going to real quick uh, give you some notes we've got on things that are going on in the NFL. Once free agency officially opens, Nick Foles is expected to sign with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Teams that have spoken to the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers regarding disgruntled all-pro wide receiver Antonio Brown are being told that a deal is likely to be ready by this Friday. Players that have been getting franchise tagged uh, as of yesterday and some key names to receive the franchise tags from their teams are Cowboys defensive lineman Demarcus Lawrence, who's been franchised for the second straight year, Seattle Seahawks defensive end Frank Clark, Atlanta Falcons defensive tackle Grady Jarrett, Houston Texans outside linebacker Jadavion Clowney. Now, normally Jadavion plays on the line, but since he's an edge rusher, the Texans kind of got around the money issue by franchising him as a linebacker, which means the average salary for linebackers is less for the elite defensive linemen, and therefore they're able to pay him less, so it works out better for them. Also, Kansas City outside linebacker D. Ford was franchised. And key names released were Giants safety Landon Collins, New England Patriots defensive lineman Trey Flowers, Baltimore Ravens safety Eric Weddle. <laughs> It's almost that time playoffs are not far away at all now and i'm excited about that it's about maybe five or so weeks roughly 18 games left but first off you know what it is lakers and lebron so i'm gonna start by doing something most of y'all who listen to me probably won't think i would do i'm gonna congratulate lebron james for passing michael jordan on the nba all-time scoring list so i think lebron now sits in fourth place right And for a guy who's been considered pass first his entire career, that's honestly a tremendous accomplishment. I will leave out the fact that, you know, in LeBron's era of NBA basketball, there's very little defense played. There's no to very little rim protection. So there's a lot of easy baskets being had. But again, to be able to play and produce at this kind of level for 16 seasons, you know, you got to give credit where it's due. It's impressive. So LeBron passed MJ last night his uh, main opponent on the greatest of all time debate and now sits in fourth place all time with 1,332 points and he is behind the Black Mamba himself, Kobe Bryant. By the way, if you're a basketball fan, an absolutely great read is the book Showboat by Roland Lazenby. It's all about the life and career of Kobe Bryant and it sheds just a lot of light on him as a person, as a player, sheds light on His family, you know, his father, Jellybean Joe Bryant, who was also an NBA player, played overseas, uh, outstanding college player. So really good read. But anyway, uh, back to LeBron and MJ and him passing MJ on the scoring list. That's an absolutely great accomplishment. But before all the LeBronites go crazy and go into hyperdrive about this accomplishment... Can we please keep in mind that LeBron has already played 118 more regular season games than Michael Jordan? So overall, again, great accomplishment, LeBron, but let's always remember to keep some context here. Keep context. For instance, here's another example of context. Even after that great 31-point night last night to push you into fourth all-time on the scoring list... Which again, I just can't say enough how impressive that is to maintain that type of production over so long a stretch. But let's not lose track of the fact that even after that big game last night, the Lakers lost again, this time by 16 points to fall further out of the Western Conference playoff race. So now if you're tracking like I am, the Lakers are now 11th in the West and six and a half games out of the eighth place spot, which would be the final uh, spot for the playoffs I won't go into a LeBron rant today really I could do one every day <laughs> but I will say all of that eight straight trips to the final stuff clearly that's come to a crashing halt the west is just a different beast and I honestly don't think LeBron had any clue just how hard it would be to be on the flip side of that coin from the east to the west you obviously can't do away and just forget with what he managed to accomplish in the east but I think now it's painfully obvious, even to LeBronites, or it should be, that had LeBron been in the West all those years, all those trips no to the finals, we wouldn't no have had I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm a LeBron hater. Right. But let's just look at this, right? In the mid to the late part of the last decade, you had the Spurs who I think beat LeBron in the uh, two thousand and eight NBA finals, right? The two thousand seven Spurs. So you had them. And then for 2008, 2009, 2010, to round out the decade, the Lakers were in the finals all three of those years. Do we really think that LeBron was going to beat the Lakers in the Western Conference or the Spurs in the Western Conference at that time? No way, no no how. Next, in the early part of this decade, you had the Mavericks and the Spurs again. Do we think that if LeBron was in the West he would have gotten out of the West playing against those teams no both way of which beat him in the no finals? No. how? No. And then obviously to the middle portion of uh this decade for the last uh, 4 years, you've had the Golden State Warriors. Their dynasty was born and they haven't looked back since, right? So clearly Golden State has beaten LeBron three out of four times in the finals. The one time LeBron beat him, he beat him with a lot of help from the league, a.k.a. the Draymond Green suspension. And let's not forget the Andrew Bogut injury. I know a lot of people are listening like Andrew Bogut. Yes, Andrew Bogut was a main rim protector. And if you notice LeBron James's field goal percentage increased drastically when Andrew Bogut got hurt and went out in game five of that series. But you know, far be it from me to let facts get in the way of a good story, right? Anyway, the point I'm trying to make is LeBron went to the finals eight straight years in the East. Yes, tremendous accomplishment. But let's be honest here. If he was in the West, he may have never gotten to the finals if he had played his entire career in the West. I know if was a fifth, right? But at the end of the day, when you look at it, these are all teams that beat this guy. He may never have even gotten out of the conference. So I think, we have to look at things. And then, honestly, you say all that dominance in the East and his first year in the West, he doesn't even make the playoffs. And I know a lot of people are going to point to the, his injury and the injuries suffered to other Laker players. But the fact is, we have no idea if they would have been able to maintain a fourth seed. I personally don't think they would have. I'm somewhat surprised to see that it looks like they won't make the, the playoffs, But obviously, you know, going into the season, I thought that they would, but I had no delusion about any chance of them being in the finals or even the conference finals. But that's just me. So the point I'm trying to make here is, let's be real about it. All the goat talk, let's put it to the side. We know, or anybody who's rational knows, that if LeBron had played his entire career in the West... He probably doesn't even ever get out of the West. Furthermore, having eight straight trips and three championships. But back to the Lakers. They look dead in the water and basically now are left yet again for another summer, hoping to land a big fish in free agents. And if that doesn't happen, then what's it going to be? What's the excuse going to be? So I'm waiting. I'm sitting back. I'm watching. I honestly don't believe they're going to get that person The Warriors are going to have to be crazy to let Clay get away. They're going to pay him. Kevin Durant has already expressed the fact that he has no interest in playing with LeBron James. He wants to compete and he wants to beat him. Kawhi Leonard hasn't shown interest in wanting to play with LeBron James, nor has Jimmy Butler. Uh, Paul George, we know, is already locked up in OKC. Uh, What's the only hope now for the Lakers? A LeBron-Kyrie reunion? That may, may not happen. Who knows? But the point is, it's looking more and more unlikely that the Lakers are going to be able to land that big fish that they want in free agency. So, again, me, diehard Celtics fan, I'm going to laugh if it doesn't happen. It should be very, very interesting. But uh, right now, obviously, they're not going to make the uh, playoffs. And maybe this is a better thing for them because they have a better chance of uh, getting the number one pick in the draft lottery at this point than they do in making the playoffs. Isn't that something? I'm sure when they got LeBron uh, this past offseason and uh, started making moves, that was the last thing they expected. But hey, when you destroy the chemistry of a team and, uh, you know, you're down with the nonsense, that's kind of what ends up happening to you. As for the rest of the West, the Warriors got smoked at home the other night by the Boston Celtics, who badly needed a big win. At this point, the Warriors, they're still first in the conference, but you can just kind of see them dragging. Earlier, in this season, probably just before, just after the all-star break, I was wondering, are they really rounding into that warrior form? Are they gonna be dominant the rest of the way? But it looks like they're not. Um you can see that they're fine they're trying to find just any motivation to make it through the rest of the regular season. You know, with an 82-game season and multiple long playoff runs, it has got to be hard to stay focused after so much success knowing that you can just turn it on in the playoffs, right? And to LeBron's credit, he feasted on that for all those years in the East. Now he's realizing in the West, you can't do that. But Golden State, they've got the roster. They've got the championship pedigree. They've got, you know, three titles in four years. They kind of can rest on their laurels a bit in the regular season, knowing what they're able to do uh, when when it counts most. So uh, they're still the favorite for me. It's just almost frustrating watching the regular season doldrums that they're going through at this point. These playoffs still, though, West and East, have some really great matchups in both conferences if the seedings remain relatively stable. If the playoffs started today, the 4-5 matchup in the West, that Portland Trailblazers, OKC Thunder, I think that's that would be one I would really love to watch. I think it would be very special. Um, the Al Farouk uh, paul George matchup would definitely be a test of Al Camino's defensive skills uh, with Paul George playing like a legit MVP candidate for most of the season. Now that's providing he comes back from injury you know uh, a decent facsimile of the player that he was before he went down. So uh, again we'll see. You never know the playoffs totally different animal different beast but that's going to be really really good. I, I can't wait and I hope that particular matchup stays the same. And of course At the point guard spot, two of the best in the league, Russell Westbrook and Dame Lillard, big game Dame, right? That is going to be something watching those two guys go at each other. When it comes to competing, even if he's not playing at his best, Russell Westbrook is an absolute psychopath and he will do anything to try and beat you. And he's going 100 miles an hour, you know, for the entirety of 48 minutes. And Dame Lillard, He's just smooth. He can give you that work too. So I'm really looking forward to that matchup. That's fireworks right there. In the East, the Bucks just keep on playing. In my opinion, Mike Budenholzer has to win Coach of the Year. He has done an absolutely fantastic job with this team. He doesn't have the greatest roster, but he does have an MVP candidate, obviously, in Greek Freak. Uh, Milwaukee is 48-16 and 16 right now on the season and are the only team so far to clinch a playoff berth. They're the best home team in the league, the best road team in the league. They're a great defensive team and at this point they're running pretty much on all cylinders. Uh I guess the only question for me thinking about this is will they or have they peaked too early? It's going to be I think a tough line to play as a coach in terms of keeping them motivated, keeping them, you know, aggressive, keeping them sharp because they aren't Golden State who can rest on the fact that they've been to four straight finals and know exactly what it takes and know what to do and how to get there, when to turn it on, etc. They're a young team that's hungry and they're on the come up and they have to go in here with that, with that pack of wolves mentality and, and, and really go get it. You wonder how is Mike Budenholzer going to balance all of that? It's a real tough line to play as a coach. Also for the Bucs, what I thought was extra interesting was the Spurs cutting Pau Gasol and then him signing with Milwaukee. Now to me that is a great infusion of front court depth of playoff and championship medal and experience. That's just huge. Obviously you're not looking for Pau Gasol to provide you, you know, 30 35 minutes a game like he used to or you know, 20 points and 12 rebounds and three or four blocks like he used to. He's not capable of doing those things anymore. But what you're looking for is help in spots in the front court because you know he can still do it. The game doesn't go away. He can still make a mid-range jumper. He can still, at times, go all the way out to three. He can still play in the post and score. He's He's got that experience. He's got that savvy. Um, he has the game. He can still do those things in small spurts. But even more so... He can be a leader, a veteran leader with proven championship and playoff experience who can help to guide his teammates, get them where they need to be, show them what it takes to win, right? And that is the value that I truly believe that Paul Gasol can bring to the Milwaukee Bucks. And I think that is um, more important than a lot of people realize. The next team in the East that I think is really important, obviously I've got some bias here, but even still just based on preseason predictions etc, etc, are the Boston Celtics. They've done they have won two straight on their road trip. First they thumped the champs at Oracle uh, the other night, like I mentioned and then uh, getting a tough win last night in Sacramento. The Celtics have been pretty inconsistent all season, but even though it's a small sample size, just two straight wins, if they're starting to get hot now, it couldn't have come at a better time because this is the home stretch. This is where you need to be getting into playing your best. You know, obviously, if you're not a team that has championship experience, this is a team where a situation where you need to be getting into playing your best going into the playoffs. Hopefully, maybe you can jump up a spot or two in the seedings. Uh, But even if not, you want to be playing your best. Last night... The uh, Celtics had six players in double figures against uh, Sacramento, and that is the type of play that you saw consistently from them, you know, late last year and all the way through the playoffs, even, you know, up to uh, eight minutes left in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, where they finally fell to LeBron and the Cavaliers, right? That's the type of thing you saw. You saw the sharing, the helping on defense, the constant ball movement, not just uh, looking for one star or one guy to be the guy, but everyone contributing and playing at a high overall level to help the Celtics be what they needed to be to try and win. And I think, you know, those are very key elements to their success. And coincidentally, six players in double figures last night and Kyrie Irving didn't play. Again, you guys know my take. I believe the Celtics are better without Kyrie Irving. I understand the premise that you need a superstar to win championships. It's almost impossible in the NBA to do it without a superstar. But who knows? We have on a couple of occasions seen it happen. By all means, if Kyrie Irving can play the right way and contribute and be the leader, not just scoring a lot of buckets, but in distributing the basketball in Actually, uh, really wanting to getting down in the crouch and playing defense, then come on, let's do it. Then we can use your big shot ability when the time comes, and 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 the Celtics need those type of plays down the stretch of pivotal games. But other than that, for me, you know, if those other guys can can you know spread the love and share the sugar and play the way you're supposed to play as a talented basketball team with excellent coaching, then I would rather that. Secondly, again, Toronto is just above the border. They're doing their thing. They're quiet. You don't hear a lot of noise coming out of there. Uh, The Raptors are number two in the East and obviously are going to be a very dangerous out. I don't think this is the same Raptors team. Obviously, personnel-wise, it's not the same Raptors team that you saw in past years have great seasons and then just fold up at the sight of LeBron James and the Cavaliers, even though, obviously, LeBron is now in the West. But you get the point. This is a team that I truly believe can be dangerous going into the playoffs. You're going to see some tremendous matchups. Obviously, Kawhi Leonard, one of the best two-way players in the league. Kyle Lowry is an absolute pit bull, a dog. He plays defense. He distributes the basketball. I think the Raptors just need him to not forget that he knows how to shoot come playoff time. I I don't know if there's something mental there. Um, At some point, he's going to have to break through if the Raptors want to be successful. Uh, Obviously, you have Marc Gasol, who may not be quite the same player that he was in the past, much like his brother, but he can still be very effective. He also knows what it is to make, you know, uh, deep playoff runs, even though he's never been to the finals. This is a team that really can be dangerous. Also, Philadelphia, once Embiid gets healthy, I just feel like they have so much talent. There's no reason that they also shouldn't be able to compete for an Eastern Conference Finals berth, depending on where the seedings are. Or an opportunity to even go to the finals. They just, to me, seem so loaded. Even just looking at that that starting five with, you know, if you've got a relatively healthy MB, you've got Ben Simmons, you've got Jimmy Butler, who, again, is a dog. Absolutely, is he has the mindset to take and make big shots. And, of course, he's a tremendous defender. And then you have uh, Tobias Harris. Like, you have all the elements here. When you have four guys like that on your your, your starting five, As a coach, it allows you a lot of leeway in terms of how you substitute, what type of patterns you use, and, uh, you know, how you uh, rotate your guys. You can always have at least one or two of your prime players on the floor, and that is a beautiful, beautiful thing to be able to have as a head coach. I gave you fair warning, beware. Before I get out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce. With March Madness almost here, NCAA basketball is ramping up for its most important time of year. Conference tournaments are in full swing and every team is vying to win their conference for an automatic win to the big dance, especially those who may not have had the best regular season to have the the kind of strength for the committee to look at and put them in automatically. And that's great, except it's not. College basketball, except for the people who truly love it, those college basketball diehards and purists, has honestly become a shell of its former self. It's only really exciting and must-watch TV during tournament time. With the one-and-done generation, it's honestly hard for a fan to get their arms around a team, watch the team grow, gel, and develop like they could do in the past where you saw most teams stay together for three to four seasons. When there's seemingly a new roster every season on most of the major teams, your Kentuckys, your Dutes, etc., it's really tough, and honestly, that hurts the college game other than in March or in April. Now, on the flip side... When a player has the ability, they should absolutely be able to go to the NBA right after high school, right? You can join the military right after high school and and fight and realistically die for your country if need be. So why can't you, if you have the ability to do it, go earn the money right out of high school if you're that type of basketball player with that sort of ability? Now, the NBA is going to be changing this rule in a couple of years to allow guys to come right out of high school again. And I think that's good. But for me, in terms of college basketball, what needs to happen is that if a player declares for the draft and they don't get drafted, they should still have the option to go back to college and play because obviously if they don't get drafted, that means they weren't ready. So why shouldn't they be able to go back to college and play? The college will benefit from that. The player will benefit from that in terms of their uh, development as a player, as a person, And uh, college basketball will also develop from that in terms of having more talent on the floor and possibly also having the ability for teams to grow, as I mentioned before. Now, my opinion is, if you do go to college, you should have to stay three seasons at least. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, that's not fair at all. If you're ready after one year, you're ready after two, you should be able to go. But for me, here's the pluses, right? If you go to school for three years, as I mentioned, you have the opportunity to grow as a person, grow as a player, really kind of cement yourself if you have an option to go on to the NBA. Also, for college, that gives them the opportunity to market you better, also market themselves better, market the schools better. Not that the schools need that much help. They're doing all that anyway. But all that does help. And it also allows the layman college basketball fan or the layperson college basketball fan a better opportunity to enjoy the game, not just during March Madness, to get to better know the players and for the schools to keep players together longer. And that will also grow the viewership and the fandom of college basketball for the average person, right? And finally, for me, the biggest reason is this would allow more college basketball players to become that much closer to earning a degree or even get it in three years if they're willing to put the work in during the summers. To me, that's a win for everybody involved. So that's it for this week. That was my Bruce Breakdown. And uh, that was the this episode of the Format Podcast. Thanks for listening in. Again, if you're on the Apple platform, rate and review, rate and review, rate and review. If you like what we're getting here, go ahead, give us those five stars. Also, if you know other people, friends, fam, acquaintances, whoever that are sports fans, go ahead, share the podcast with them. Let's get it out there to as many people as we can. Share it, listen to it, enjoy it, you know, let other people hear it. Also, if you want to communicate directly with me, obviously you can catch me on Twitter at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. You can catch me on Instagram at The Format Podcast. That's at The Format Podcast. So again, thank you for listening this week. And that's it for me. I'm out.